This is Judy Collins, and you are listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. These four boys come down who are gorgeous, who have bangs. Boys with bangs? Huh? Boys with bangs and boots? What? You know, and they just come down and they're so funny and charming and fabulous and everybody loves them and they're so cute and, and the songs are so catchy. And boom, it was this absolute shift so fast. It was so quick. That's what was so amazing. Today's guest is not only a Beatles fan through and through, but a successful jack of all trades in numerous sectors of the entertainment industry. Plus, he's honest to goodness royalty. Born the 26th Marquis de Bar, Michael de Bar has enjoyed renown as an actor, musician, and songwriter. In the 1980s, he famously took to the world stage, standing in for Robert Palmer as the lead singer for the Power Station, the Duran Duran-led supergroup. De Bar fronted the band during their bravura performance at Live Aid. During that same period, he scored an international hit with Obsession, which he composed with Holly Knight and which catapulted the group and emotion to the top of the charts. As an actor, Debar has hundreds of credits to his name on the big and little screens alike. He can be seen in movies like Ghoulies, Pink Cadillac, and Midnight Cabaret, as well as such TV shows as WKRP in Cincinnati, Melrose Place, MacGyver, Seinfeld, Roseanne, Just Shoot Me, Lois and Clark, and Nast Bridges. These days, Debar hosts the Michael Debar program on Little Steven's Underground Garage for Sirius XM, where he enjoys a daily audience of more than 6 million listeners. Welcome, Michael Debar. So dig this. My Beatles story is, I was at this boarding school in England from 8 to 16, right? And I never went home in, in the vacation period because my father was in jail and my mother was at an institution for schizophrenia. Don't sob right now because it's okay. Uh, I, I grew up fine. But I'm 16. I'm in drama school. What happens? The BBC come to our drama school and take six of us from that class and says, we're going to go. We're going to shoot you going to a concert. <laughs> this is absolutely true. We're going to shoot you going to a concert and you, we're gonna, the camera's going to be on you and we're going to see your reaction going into the gig, you know, during the gig and after the gig. It's a fucking Beatles. And, and, you know, the natural teens of Dusty Springfield and, uh, you know, the Yardbirds and the Animals and uh, Freddie and the Dreamers and Jerry and the Pacemakers and, you know, unbelievable. 
Was this some kind of, of package tour? What happened in those days was there was a British newspaper called the New Musical Express. Some of you aficionados out there will understand what that is. It was a, it was the Bible. So every year they would have a festival and everybody would have three minutes. Billy J. Cream and the Dakotas, you know, you name it. I mean, it was there was like 20 bands doing three songs. Well, the closing act was John Paul, George and Ringo. And I, and that's when I saw them. I saw them play, you know. I'm one of those few creatures on the planet, <laughs> apart from Ringo and Paul, that actually, you know. So there they are. And I have never experienced anything like it because all of what you hear is true in terms of the audio. You couldn't hear a word. It was it was like a silent movie with a a, a family of dinosaurs screaming. And and the dinosaurs were these young girls, and I swear to God, all I could do was look at the young girls for one thing. But you know, but I adored the Beatles at that time because I was stuck in this boarding school, you know, and and music was my release. And when they came along, because I was very into Muddy Waters, and you know, and in fact, all the music that inspired John Paul George and Ringo, which were girl groups for the most part, and Little Richard, right? So that's the music that I would listen to. And now I'm seeing these four guys, you know, I'm 16, they're 20 or whatever it was, you know, and it was this osmosis, this miraculous thing. So when they, and they were shooting us all the time, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, they're filming us and we're screaming, ah, yeah, that was great. When it came time to leave, I snuck backstage. I left the whole gig. I'd leave them behind, all the kids and the BBC and the crew, and I tried to find them. I went back, and of course, I was thrown out on my ass. And uh, But nevertheless, that was my first experience with the phenomena, the cultural you know, tsunami of the Beatles. That must have seemed like a, an incredible tonic at the time. It was desperately needed. Um, in post-Second World War England, um, the working class were, re- were unemployed and re- it was... Uh, a dreadful cultural thing. London was considered, you know, the key city. But when these four young men came down from the north of England, which was considered sort of beneath the great culture of London, the great British hypocrisy bullshit, you know, so these four boys come down who are gorgeous, who have bangs. Boys with bangs? Huh? Boys with bangs and boots? What? You know, and they just come down and they're so funny and charming and fabulous and everybody loves them and they're so cute and and the songs are so catchy. And boom, it was this absolute shift so fast. It was so quick. That's what was so amazing. So because we were, you know, I was going to those clubs and and watching the Yardbirds, which is a very different vibe. It was, um, you know, the blues. These were pop songs. They were a pop band. And it was an explosion. And I think... What I'm trying to get at is that England needed to be cheered up and England needed some heroes, not just World War II veterans who were almost shunned by society because nobody wanted to be reminded about the bombing. And these four kids came out of the rubble of the Second World War and changed the world. So why are we still listening to these guys in the 21st century? The cultural significance of the Beatles is absolutely unparalleled by any artistic endeavor and indeed political endeavor or even the light bulb. Because the light bulbs went on when the Beatles arrived. It gave the, like Jimmy Dean gave credence to teenagers because pre-James Dean, America specifically, were children and adults. 
And James Dean gave the teenagers a voice. Well, so did the Beatles. But the voice of the Beatles was in music. Music is a force that is inexplicable. If you're talking about, you know, whatever it is, Catholicism or witchcraft, what do you do at these uh, occasions? Sing. Music is everything. It's the great spell that is cast upon the universe by John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And they were all songs of, of love, of, of um, you know, she does love you. She loves you, you know? I mean, imagine writing a song, not I love you or she loves me. The Beatles said she loves you. That was a major Dickensian literary moment. They're talking to a friend. I mean, who the hell talked? So then we're all friends now with John Paul George Ringo. They are our, our brothers. So we, we talk to them when we need them. And when we need them, we listen to their music. And remember, there were only 10 hours of Beatle music made. So it's a staggering 10 hours changed the world, which is a great title for the next documentary from Martin Scorsese. So what was it that caused you, Michael Day Barr, to form such a lasting connection with them? It's not so much melodically, because I'm Steve Marriott, you know, I'm not John Lennon. But I, I would say that John Lennon, in particular, was a real major force in my view of the world, because he, like me, didn't have a mother. Julie was gone, right? And that's what happened to me. And that changes you, the parental vibe. You know, so you become pretty cryptically cynical about the world when you're not brought up by anybody. Um, now, you either go in one direction or another. The great thing about Lennon's life, the mythology of Lennon's life is, is that he overcame these incredible difficulties. And I related to that. I, I, you know, I could see him changing when Yoko came and his art changed and, and his view of the world changed and he became an activist. You know, he went from this sneering, cynical, difficult man to an activistic, um, you know, guy who wanted to change the world with peace. And, and that, that and, and when he said, Mother, you had me, but I never had you, that song blew my mind. Never mind imagine, Mother was the song that did it for me. That search that John Lennon describes, that journey to find Mother is so essential to his story. So how did you find yourself uh, being able to take part in the Power Station gig at Live Aid? I was in Texas with Don Johnson having fun. You know, he's my friend uh, doing a movie. And um, and I got a call from a promoter in New York saying, come to New York. This is a band that needs a singer and they have a tour booked and you should come. They really want to meet you. And I said, who are they? And I said, we can't tell you. I said, well, first class limo at the airport. I'll see you, in, you know, tonight. And I went from Marshall, Texas. I got in the car. I went to this office in Manhattan, up 17 floors. There's John Taylor sweating and Tony Thompson looking very nervous. Because this is a tour six months, man. This is hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. And and they liked me because we'd opened for them, Check It Pass, me and Jonesy's band and Clem Burke. And uh, one time, and they remember me. And that's why they contacted me. We go to the power station studio. We take Robert's voices off. I take the tape. I go on the Concord to London. Um, I meet with Andy Taylor, who is there. Eight hours late, I, I went to the studio. <laughs> I'm waiting for him. He arrives in a billowing marijuana smoke, you know, dream with two bodyguards. He's a little guy, great guy. So I'd sung, you know, I sang a verse and a chorus of Get It On. And he, he pushed the control button and said, let's go shopping, which I did. Spent $20,000 on clothes, got back on the Concord, went back to New York. 
Dome was in New York. We went to dinner at Chinois. As we're going out of the suite, the phone rings, and Danny Goldberg, my manager, says, you're out. It's over. I said, what? He said, you're out. Palmer's back in. I said, can I keep the clothes? That's incredible. He said, no. <laughs> and they're in the boxes in my hotel suite, right? So then I'm obviously shattered, and I go to dinner. What happens? Me and Don were sitting there. Who walks in? John Taylor. Six tables away from us, sort of avoiding me, right? Because Palmer's back in. So Don says, hang on, Mikey, I'll be, uh, I'll be right back. Hang on. So he goes over to John, and he says, can I talk to you? Yes, because John Taylor, Sonny Crockett was John Taylor's idol. Right? So they go out on the sidewalk, and they talk. Don comes back. John comes back. I'm told nothing. I didn't ask a question. I didn't ask anything that he said. We go back to the hotel. 7 a.m., the phone rings, you guys. And my manager says, um, you're in. You're back in. I, st- I said, you f- don't fuck with me. He said, Michael, you're in. It's, it's good. They made a deal with the merchandising. I believe... <laughs> <laughs> that this was showbiz at its finest because I think that his team simply got him more money for the merch because they knew full well that he couldn't play in front of 60,000 topless teenagers and I have a propensity to be able to do that. And, you know, his, you know, I mean, I, Robert Palmer is one of my favorite composers in the entire world. And I adored him and knew him 10 years before I joined the power station, loved him, got stoned with him, loved him. So, you know, and when people said, Michael, they have big shoes to fill, I said, I brought my own shoes. I love that. You know, get out of here. And it was back and they'd worked it out. And I went to rehearsals at noon and was told we were doing Live Aid in three days. And that's, that's the story of Live Aid. Thank goodness for friends like Don Johnson, right? You know, Don Johnson is the most charismatic guy. If, if he said jump into the traffic, you would. You know, he is a really unbelievable person. I mean, obviously, he's a spectacular actor. Um, but he's a lot more than that. You know, he's a really, really, really magical guy. And, uh, you know, you must recall a couple of weeks later, we were on Miami Vice doing Get It On. So, you know, there was a certain, uh, you know, little negotiating going on. We'll be right back with more from Michael Debar after this message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. We were talking with Michael Day Barr before the break 
about that incredible speed with which the entire episode with the power station and live aid unfolded. And Michael, I'm curious, how do you deal with that? How do you get in the right mindset? The greatest hits ever written by John Lennon or anybody else were done in 10 minutes. You don't think. Thinking is really overrated on all levels in any walk of life. Don't think at all. Just be. Just be there and don't think. Because then you're going to come up with stuff that is dusty. Think of new stuff and new words and new ways of saying how you feel. You know, that's what Lennon did. I mean, come on. You know, <laughs> you know, the, the lyrically, John Lennon, he was a surreal poet, you know, as we all know. And that's not stuff that you, you know, you spit it out like Dylan. You know, it's um, it's a gift. And you just pl- plug into God, man. Uh, if God had a piece of Lennon's publishing, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. So do you attribute this kind of success to being able to shuck and jive until the conditions match what you want them to be? Well, it's not shuck and jive. That that implies that you're fool, trying to fool people. I never tried to fool people. I think that my exuberance and enthusiasm um, is catchy. Anita Pallenberg was once asked what her greatest trait was, and she, she said, my charm. So I feel the same way. I think I've lasted this long and done this much and, and made, you know, what I've made, which is, you know, I've been pretty successful over the years and, and, and also been in a hole in the ground, you know, and I've never lost my confidence or exuberance in what I can do. And I, that is the key. You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to. You cannot let Robert Christgau tell you what time it is. Criticism does have a place, though, right, in helping us to understand culture. See, you've got to make your bones when you're a critic. This is why criticism is is as absurd as the word itself. I guess the idea behind it is that you make a good, bad value judgment. Do you dig what you dig? Those who know, know. If I like Billy Eilish and you like Billy Idol... I'm thrilled to live in a world where I have access to both. Fantastic. But to critique what I like, fuck off. Because this is me listening to this. I totally see your point. My issue is with folks in the contemporary moment trying to tell me how to think about uh, someone like Ringo Starr uh, and comparing their drumming to what may be happening in the contemporary moment. The thing about Ringo is because you've had Bonzo, you've had Jim Keltner, you've had all these incredible moon, all of the great drummers, but that's not the point. The point is you're in a band. What makes that band perfect is everybody in that band. It's not one shining star because when that one shining star leaves that band, they usually, you know, collapse into an abyss. Mick Jagger is an example of that. Mick Jagger, the greatest frontman, the original unique frontman, could not sell a solo record if he, if he, you know, bought them himself, and he probably could. Um, in this case, Ringo is a beetle. <laughs> you know, that transcends that. That's like saying Ringo is July. You know, it, it's an absurdity and it, it infuriates me. We can learn a lot from how he performed his role in the Beatles. He was the perfect drummer for that band. He was the one person who could sit for perhaps 14 hours while Lennon and McCartney or Harrison worked out great new ideas. Exactly correct. Now that takes discipline. You know, um, uh, there's many sides to Ringo Starr, you know, that one doesn't know uh, because we don't want to know and we shouldn't know how they did it. You know, only us geeks do that, you know, but but people that listen to music and just enjoy music for music's sake, 
they, you're absolutely precisely right. It's a very clever observation. 16 fucking hours waiting to find out what to do with the bass drum. And, and that's what makes great records. Records are not live performances. Records are records. They're music that lasts forever. And they knew that right from the get-go, from the doubling of, of his voice to the harmonies to the whole melodic view of it, you know, was so brilliant. And Ringo's right there. Ringo's right there giving it that rhythm. Because what is rock and roll? What is the most important instrument in rock and roll? It's got to have a backbeat so you can't lose it. The beat, the fucking beat. You can't beat the beat. You know, I mean, it's the groove. Everything is about groove. I don't care if it's Eddie Cochran or Eno. It's a rhythm. <laughs> Eddie Cochran, I love it. Um, it's, you know, whether it's ambient or rockabilly, it doesn't matter. It's the feel. Ringo had the feel. It was their producer, George Martin, who observed that in those 10 hours of recording that you referenced earlier, Ringo may have made uh, maybe one, two, possibly three errors uh, in, in all of those sessions. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, flubs are good. You know, the thing is, is not to let flubs get in the way because you can get hung up on that. You can, like, if I sing something, not that I ever would, flat, um, you know, then, then I would think, oh, that was flat, I'm fucked. You know, but being a professional as well as being a spiritual leader, which I believe the Beatles are, then Ringo uh, would get on with it, right? Get on. And I've always thought that. That's been my motto. If, if I have anything on my grave series, is get on with it, you know? Um, and I think that he did just that. As you know, we're only a few months away from marking the darkest day on the Beatles calendar, which is the terrible end of John Lennon's life. Do you recall where you were and, and, and what that impact was like? I was in Boston with a band. I was, had a solo album out called I'm Only Human. And uh, we, I, the gig was done. I was watching Johnny Carson and, the, you know, and we were, t- I got tears cut to us now. And, and uh, we told J- uh, John was dead and we got in the van and drove to the Dakota from Boston, right then and there. So that day I was at the Dakota and just stayed in the crowd till dawn. And then we had to drive to Cleveland and we we're on the road and Yoko had asked for two minutes of silence. This is getting me all worked up now. Uh, two minutes of silence. And uh, we stopped and we got out of the van and um, sobbed really in each other's arms, which in some miraculous way made our band even closer. Can you imagine that? And then we got back in the van and drove to Cleveland, did a gig, and um, the world wasn't the same. The way he died will never be anything but senseless. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I mean, he stood for something and he got shot in the back. You know. the, the, so I was talking to my friend Gabriel Byrne, who's a big Beatle fan, and, and I only bring him up because he's my friend. And we we're talking about Johnny, adores John, and, uh, and he said to me, somebody said, hey, Michael, you know, the last fucking thing he did was give something a gift to a fan think about that he gave an autograph and got shot in the back changing gears for a moment when you think about your career how do you decide what to do next what kind of art you'll make when you've worked in so many different genres I don't look forward because that doesn't exist what I do is I look you don't need to look forward. You look 
and do it in the moment. Whatever it is, do it here right now. Do it. Do it. It's not a question of what happens. It's a question of what's happening. As an artist, don't think about moving forward. Where, where, where is what? Forward changes as the weather changes. You think about what's happening now. You're in the moment. That's the only thing that matters. This conversation, I didn't write this. You didn't write this. This is happening at the same time. So then what's your writing process like? How do you approach it? Just do it. Do it. Here it is. Let's do it. Okay, I've got a pen. I've got some paper. I'll write words. I'll get the guitar. I'll, I'll put the words to the chords that I know, the humble few chords that I know, and then I'll record it. And I'll see if my band and Stevie likes it. And if they like it, then we'll record it, you know. But it, 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 that's a sequence of events. It's not looking forward. Well, in that sense, then, what are you working on now? What is right in front of you in the moment? I'm, I'm writing and have been for years a musical about Dessard. It's called The Sadist, you know, and it's a, and it's a rock and roll, if you will, different genres to uh, according to which character, like Robespierre is a punk and, you know, Marie Antoinette is Marianne Faithful. Um, so it's a very interesting thing. And I, I work very, very hard on, on that. How do you maintain the momentum, given that we're in the age of COVID? I'm writing songs with a number of different people via Zoom recording. Because uh, we all have, in my band, the mistakes, you know, we all have a, uh, a studios because they're, they're session guys and they've been very lucky, uh, as I have. And so we do it that way. And it's great, you know. I mean, I believe in the ethos of sitting in a studio and looking at each other and playing music. Of course, that's the primary way of doing it. But if you technologically have to do it, then do it. You know, don't don't explain, oh, man, the vibes aren't there, man. Well, fuck off. You know, I mean, here I am. You know my vibes and there's Zoom and let's do this. You know, let's, what you got? What do you think it is then that holds artists back from uh, making new ground, from creating new art? Mommy and daddy. Is that right? Really? Mommy and daddy. So then it's the old Philip Larkin poem, right? They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Well, everything springs from that, doesn't it? And what he's saying there is, is that, you know, the thing is, is that you are what you're born into until you realize you're not. <laughs> you know, and you can make yourself up, you know. I don't, you know, I had a dreadful childhood. At one years old, my, uh, you know, education was paid for because my father was an aristocrat, a marquee, a very wealthy man who embezzled money and went to jail. And I'm one. Fortunately, my education was paid for. My mother was a 17-year-old stripper, his fifth wife. And by the way, they didn't get married till I was 30. And I got a cable and I'm like on tour. And I get this cable saying, uh, from, from my father saying, um, congratulations, you're not a bastard anymore which is the title of my book, of course. I'm only kidding, but my point being is, is that where the pain begins. So what is pain? Pain is love. So what did Dessert enjoy? Pain. And I rest my case. So then by that logic, we can reinvent ourselves. We can take life head on. To borrow a phrase from John Lennon, there are no problems, only solutions. Yes, of course you can. Everything is possible is my, you know... Motto. <laughs> in my case, um, you know, the disadvantages on the surface were advantages underneath. I've learned more from the mistakes than I did from the triumphs. So when it comes to the Beatles, 
which songs do you find yourself returning to? Melodically, Dear Prudence, um, and, and metaphysically, I am the walrus. Dear Prudence is a wonder. It's, it's like a miracle. It's perfect. It's a perfect song. Won't you come out to play? You know? uh, but it, it, he just sings it so great. You know, it's a dub, that double track voice and, uh, you know, the acoustic in there. And it's just so John Lennon. Uh, you know, he wrote it in Ricochet, as I'm sure you're aware, and it was Mia Farrow's sister. But it didn't matter who it was. I mean, the song is about him. It's my favorite. And I am the walrus because of his astute, um, you know, Dickensian uh, surrealism. Um, you know, it is, it's just, uh, it's just it's so British. To me, I'm the walrus is endlessly fascinating because it also sits uh, with John Lennon, who is now on the cusp at that point in the Beatles history of beginning his artistic journey with Yoko Ono. That's something in and of itself. And I think that that frisson, as they say in French, that friction created even greater music, you know, with her there, whatever she was doing, you know. And I think when people say she broke up the Beatles, she made the Beatles at that age, time in, the, in, the, in their lives. I think she had a tremendous effect on all four of them. Fundamentally, the, the, the vibe is that she was very supportive of him and, 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 uh, and the Beatles. But all of the crap that had gone between them pre-Yoko, she brought up the difficulties of the four of them. She brought that into, into their faces. And that's what, what actually made them realize that it would be better if they did their own music. Because let's face it, those last few weeks were all solo records, you know. Before we sign off, could you tell us about how you came to be into Sir with Love? How old were you then? 17, uh, in drama school, and Columbia Pictures come to the drama school and they take, you know, me and Judy and uh, Jason and a few others and, 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 you know, audition us. And I, I remember I did, I did to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings of, of outrageous fortune or, you know, to believe them or not to be. And I did this big dramatic thing. said, hey, Michael, would you mind wearing sunglasses for this whole movie? <laughs> You know, it was so funny because I was such a serious young actor. And we went in there, man, and we met Sidney Poitier, and the rest of it is history, you know. And Sean Connery was in the next soundstage doing Bond, and he would pop in and chat with Sidney. I was, and I'm 17, you know, and we're all stripping each other. It was fantastic. It was like the greatest thing in the world. And then we could all get into these clubs for nothing. It was 1967, and Portier was just churning out movies, right? Well, he did it three in that year. Who's Coming to Dinner, Heat of the Night, and To Sew With Love, all in 67, 66, 67. Imagine, imagine that. Three of the greatest movies ever with one of the greatest actors that ever lived. It was insane. Thank you so much for such a, a wide-ranging and stimulating conversation. This has really been one for the books. We, we sure appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I must say, I feel exactly the same. I've never had quite had an interview of this kind before, so in depth about a, uh, with a professor, uh, and I and I say that with great respect because music and the Beatles require to be investigated and taught, and you do that, and I bl bless you for it, and I'm honoured to talk with you uh, today. Thank you very much. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.